Welcome to Grit Capital's GritCast, where you get exclusive access to interviews with management teams from millennial sectors like esports, cannabis, and fintech in Canada, US, and globally. So excited bringing you guys one of Canada's, if not the world's most successful businessmen, Mr. Frank Justra. He has been in so many different industries from mining to entertainment and films to investment banking. And he seems to always have a knack for entering sectors and exiting sectors at the right time. So we're going to have him join us uh, right now. Hey, Frank. Hey, how you doing? Good. How's it going? Very well. Thank you. Thank you for you? having me on the show. Yeah. Are you in uh, Are you in Vancouver? I am. Sitting on the border. Nice. Your hometown, right? Yes. It's a beautiful day. It is. It is. I've actually been in Vancouver for almost a month now and really, really enjoyed myself. And actually had a great time at your uh, your big fundraiser a couple of weeks back. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> it really, really was. Beautifully done. Thank you. So, listen. Um, one of the things that's always fascinated me uh, about your career is all the different sectors that you've been in, um, you know, whether it's been Lionsgate and film and content, whether it's been investment banking with Yorkton and Endeavor, and, and gold has been a mainstay for you throughout, throughout your career. So, you know, I've noticed now that you've been popping your head up a little, you're a very private man, but you've come out and you've got some exciting, uh, big, exciting thesis around gold and, and, and why now? And so our audience, um, which is mostly hedge funds and portfolio managers, they're looking at the gold space. They've, they've been in and out, but, you know, they're curious to know, like, why a guy like you at this point is so excited about it. So if you could, uh, you could impart your knowledge to us, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, and I'll try and make it brief because obviously you can talk on this subject matter for a long, long time to get into a lot of detail. But if you look at it simply as that, what I, and this is what I believe in terms of where we're at at this moment in time. So I, I, I think we're in the third and final act of a three-part saga. And this is like the big finale, the big climax where, um, you know, where you get all your explosions and all the fireworks and, and, and the story that started back <laughs> in 2001 and that was the first phase and that's when the sort of the plot developed to basically where i started to see a change in behavior gold is primarily driven by monetary policy there are other things that impact gold but primarily it's influenced by monetary policy and i saw a change of behavior starting to take place back in two, actually the late 90s and early 2000s with the Federal Reserve and the way that they reacted to every type of financial crisis or market correction. And under Alan Greenspan, who ran the Fed at the time, you could see that he was creating a moral hazard. And I don't know if you know how moral hazard works, but it is basically like when you start sipping from the punch bowl, and at first, you know, it's fine, it, it tastes good, it, you know, you're not getting <laughs> drunk. But pretty soon, if you keep sipping from the punch bowl, you start to get a little reckless. And, you know, by 2000, so he created an environment that led to the 2008 crisis where there, everybody was guzzling out of the punch bowl. <laughs> and so that created the crisis, which uh, then set the stage for the second phase of the gold market, which started in 2009 and ran to 2011, where we reached that high of $1,900 an ounce. Mm -hmm. We are now in the third phase where things have gotten so ridiculous that we're actually shotgunning 
from the from this punch bowl right now. This is how investors are behaving. You've got a, a, a global environment of explosive debt. So you have a humongous global debt bubble, which is about $250 trillion and has almost doubled since the last crash. Wow. And you've got in, speculation taking place, which is fueled by all of that debt and easy money that was created by all the central banks. And it's mispriced everything. All the assets are mispriced because the central banks around the world have created this, this incredible amount of free money in essence. So moral hazard is now firmly ingrained in the psyche of all investors. And I don't know if you follow Ray Dalio. Yeah. He, okay, well, he made it very clear with his paper about the paradigm shift. I don't know if it came out a few weeks back. And he nailed it in terms of explaining what's happened with the investor psyche. You know, you get, you have a, a certain type of market behavior for a long period of time. People get accustomed to it. Yeah. Uh, they, it becomes very popular. They think it will never end. Then they overextend themselves and eventually they get hurt badly because they believe it will never end. And so this is what's fueling what I think will fuel the third phase as these things start to unravel. And I think the bell will ring, the, the final bell will ring when the Fed, which is sort of the last holdout providing any yield in terms of its uh, treasuries, when they go to zero. You've got Japan going at zero and participating in still in QE. You've got Europe at zero and negative yields, and they will start QE, I think, this fall. And the Fed will, in my opinion, drop rates to zero again, even before the recession starts. And, the, and we've already seen signs that the recession is probably in the cards in the next year or so. And I think the Fed will get a lot of pressure from the administration, will get a lot of pressure from Wall Street to get rates down to zero. And when the U.S. rates hit zero, that's when the bell rings because then gold is the only chair left when the music stops. That's it. There's nowhere else to go. There's no reason not to own gold at that point because not everything yields zero. I mean, yeah, I was gonna say like so. I, my background is in is in economics. I have a CFA. I've been in finance for twelve years, and when I look at the nineteen trillion in negative yields out there, I'm not smart enough, and I don't understand what happens when the Fed doesn't have any more levers. Like if they, you know, they can't print any more money. Like, so yes, what happens? No, absolutely. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Everybody's going to, when, when rates hit zero globally, the next step is QE again. And I said it earlier, it'll start in Europe sooner than in the United States, but the U.S. will follow. Now, they'll call it something else. And there's this whole concept <laughs> about helicopter money. And yeah. they might find ways to bypass the financial system and put the money directly into the hands of government. Or into the hands of consumers, and and but it's still money printing mm -hmm. to try and create some sort of economic stimulus. But the, the, this negative yield thing that you mentioned, this is craziness. You know, these I, I thought it was seventeen trillion. You say it's nineteen trillion. Yeah, it moved two trillion in about a week because I created yeah, a you know, <laughs> and it's going to keep going higher. You think yeah. about the stupidity of it. I don't know. Did you see that hundred-year Austrian bond? There's a, a Austria issued a hundred-year bond. Uh -huh. Its yield is 0.7 on a 100-year bond, 0.7% yield. Like, who? you think people are buying that because they're going to hold it to maturity? 
Absolutely not. They're speculating. Now, obviously, there are a lot of institutions in Europe that are mandated to own sovereign bonds. So that's a lot of it. But a lot of the speculation and the speculation is that they hope that QE will come in and will drive the bond prices higher and obviously the yields lower. But you think think about the logic of a negative yielding bond. And I, and I tried to think of a, a metaphor. I don't know if you ever saw The Godfather Part Two. There was a great scene in The Godfather Part Two where the senator comes in to uh, demand a bribe to give the gaming license to Michael Corleone. And, and he insults Michael Corleone. Michael Corleone says, you know what? I'll give you my offer right now. My offer is nothing. And uh, in fact, I'd like you to even pay my gaming fee out of your personal pocket. And that is what a negative yield like. You're giving somebody your money and it's costing you to give yeah. your money. And it's, it's insanity. And this is what we've reached where we're at in the world today. We're in uncharted waters. The world's never seen this before. Not, something has to unravel. You've got all this debt. You've got a lot of debt that's being speculated with. You know, you've got, I don't know if you know this, but half of all investment grade bonds are triple Bs, which is one step above junk. We go into a recession, a lot of that falls into the junk category. The index funds are going to have to kick out these things, and it's going to cause a cycle of selling that's going to affect everything. That's what I'm more worried about the bond market than I am than I am about the stock market. Although the stock market is also way overdue for a correction, way overdue. Right. And all of this is painting such a rosy picture for gold. And I've been in in Vancouver for two days now. Uh, marketing a cannabis company, so not a gold company, but I've been meeting with all the brokers, the investment advisors, a lot of guys that you would know, and women. And one of the behavioral things that I have found very interesting is that because these uh, money managers have been in the game for a really long time, and they used to invest in mining, and then obviously there's been this kind of lull, they're reluctant to get in the game. And so what I'm thinking is there's probably going to be a kicking and screaming type of situation, if I could use a metaphor, where these guys are going to be pulled in kind of, I wouldn't say the last minute, but they're going to start investing later than they usually would have because they've been burned so many times before on these fake starts. And so to your point of this kind of parabolic move, um, that's when you're going to start seeing Bay Street start doing deals and investment bankers getting in the game. And, you know, it's it's so for people watching now, I think there's like a really good opportunity to get in now before the big institutional money starts moving in. I was wondering what your thoughts would be about that. Yeah, I think that it's it will be driven by the gold price. And my guess is and I'm guessing who knows, but I think that when gold surpasses the old highs, which is 1900. And it will, and I don't think it will take that long. That's when people will start to believe we're really in a different environment and believe that this is the beginnings of a, an explosive gold market like we've never seen before. And that's when, but I think it'll be initially driven, the gold price is going to be driven by large pools of institutional money. There's so much liquidity in the world that's been speculating in things like bonds, and they're going to start to see that there's no value there and that the money printing will actually destroy the value of, of that, those kind of paper assets. That, so gold's going to be driven a lot higher, and then we'll start to see the interest in the gold mining stocks. We've already seen it in the seniors. We're starting to see a bit of it in the intermediate producers. Leia Gold is a company I'm a chairman of, and I was, it finally, after years, started to move up. It's getting interest. The juniors, developers, explorers, 
that's a game that will probably you'll start to see the action there when gold reaches approaches or surpasses the, the old high I was wondering, you obviously own a lot of physical gold and you're involved in a few public gold companies. So what what are those companies and what do you suggest kind of a an average person who wants to insure themselves against this world that you're painting? How much should they own? What should they be looking at? Well, listen, I'm not here to talk my own book and I, I don't like doing that. I am the chairman yeah. of gold and you can look it up and, you know, we're, we're trying to build a gold mining company much like we did with Gold Corp in the early 2000s and with Endeavor Mining uh, in 2009. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it's run by Neil Woodger and he's doing an amazing job. We have four mines in production and, you know, and hopefully we're going to be a lot bigger uh, during the course of this market. Um, so that, that's one approach is to own the intermediate gold producers, those that have growth. I bypass the seniors because I think they have very little room for growth. Um, so you own the physical gold and you own intermediate gold producers and you look at riding both the gold price and their own production profile. <clears throat> the developers are really interesting because developers have been out of favor for a long time. So these are companies that have deposits mm -hmm. that have um, economic deposits at some gold price. And, you know, Sandspring, you mentioned, yes, I'm a shareholder of Sandspring, a uh, big shareholder. And that's the reason I bought it a number of years ago was because I believed the gold price was going higher. And I thought, I want to own a lot of something that's high lever to the gold price. As gold goes higher, that project will put, be put into production. It will be acquired by another mining company. You know, that's the, how these things evolve. So, and there are lots of those around. You have to be very careful and obviously make sure that... Uh, a brokerage firm with a good mining analyst, a good geologist has looked at it, that the management has a good track record of doing these things in the past. That's really important. And because, you know, these things are tricky and there's, there are a lot of them that are overpromoted and, you know, people make claims that, that aren't always true. So you have to be so careful in those. And then there's all, obviously the explorers. And I think explorers are a lot of fun, but so risky. You got to be so careful and you have to know that you're putting money into something that may not work out at all. You may lose all of it. Um, but again, I, I own one exploration company. That is it. And to me, I call it my lottery ticket. It's either going to work or it isn't. And I keep putting money into it every year. Um, and, you know, you hope for the best. <laughs> I was uh, fascinated by one of the facts. I think it was either your BNN interview or your Kitco interview, and you mentioned that there's only 80 developing, uh, sorry, 80 producing gold companies in the world. And I thought to myself immediately, just because I've been in this cannabis craze for the last three years, there's over like 300 cannabis companies. Now, all of them aren't producing cannabis, but I thought, whoa, there's only 80 producing gold companies in the Actually, world. And, like, it, it, I haven't looked. It's 88. Uh, someone corrected me. Okay. That statement. It's 88. And the combined market cap of those 88 producers is $400 billion. There are companies with market caps higher than that. Wow. Think about it. $400 billion of market cap across all the producers in the world. It's nothing. That is, that's, that's not a lot. And, and what do the production profiles look like? Like, have they been increasing? Uh, has it stayed stagnant? Like, I haven't looked back at the market in a while, so... Well, it's been very quiet. I don't think a lot of mining companies have been very, very quiet during this last lull, which lasted since 2011. I, I suspect things are going to pick up now as, yeah, you know, the yeah. gold prices starts to become more interesting. And some of these things, you know, the, the economics work a lot better. So I think you'll see development projects coming on stream, major mining companies making production decisions. But I think they're going to be very cautious. They were so 
badly burned after 2011 and so criticized by the financial community that I still think that the certainly the senior money companies are going to be very cautious and they're going to dip their toe in the water very carefully before they put projects into production. All right, we have a question here from one of uh, the audience members. That is it true that there's only enough pure gold in the world to fill three Olympic-sized swimming pools? <laughs> yeah, something like that. I, you know, I can't remember. It's something like that. It's some ridiculously, if you like, if you kind of put it, frame it like that. I can't yeah. remember what it was, but yeah, so I've heard that before. So let's talk about millennials for a second, because a lot of our audience is millennials, new investors. And yeah, you're not, but you can impart your knowledge. I mean, these millennials trade on Robinhood for free. They don't even pay trading fees. Um, you know, and they they may have never owned a gold stock. So how do we kind of get these, these not kids, I mean, they're in their 30s and 40s, but how do we get them excited about this market? I, I think, okay, I think you got to start with the basics, okay? Yeah. And I know millennials are going to hate to hear this. <laughs> start reading some books, history books, okay? Start there. I know people don't read history books anymore because everything that's about to happen has happened before many, many times. And the writing is on the wall. Now it will vary in, in the way it plays out, but I don't have a crystal ball. I have history books. Yeah. And so start there and really educate yourself. You know, and I know that a lot of millennials like to, I don't know, they probably don't trade shares, but they trade cryptocurrencies. Yeah, the crypto, but on Robinhood, they do buy shares, but they don't want to pay fees. They don't want to have an investment advisor at a bank. They want to do it themselves, all self-directed. Uh, they don't really trust with, anybody except with what information? With what information? Like, how, on what basis are they making these decisions? Um, I don't know, social media influencers. Okay, well, that's, okay. that's really dumb. They should stop doing that because, they're, you know, there's, that's just gambling. You might as well go to the casino. Yeah. You know, I, I can't I can't help them if that's what who are mean. your sources like who do you look to like who do you read like Ray Dalio is obviously one of your guys yeah I try not to read anything that's published by Wall Street because they're always wrong right. pretty much you know I Goldman Sachs is the worst <laughs> they, they every time they make a prediction about gold or oil it's for me it's an opposite buy signal it's every time so I try and stay away from Wall Street reports because I I think they're just marketing their own stuff mm -hmm. and um, so you find things that are like uh, offbeat publications, you know, obviously there are great you know, newsletters, you know, Ray Dalio is great, but there are a lot of people like him. Um, you, you have to search for your own information. Um, you know, I'm not going to recommend, you know, I've got my own sources and I, I, I follow them carefully. Yeah. Well, and then there's guys like De Dennis Gartman, for example. Yes, very good. I think they, yeah, they've made guy. a lot of good information, but their yeah. calls may not be always right, but like the information, the macro stuff they gather is very good. Yeah, and um, I think you got to look at the macro stuff because the problem is, and one of my biggest difficulties is trying to determine timing. I mapped out, I started writing about this stuff in 2001. I started publishing papers on gold and the dollar and what was going to happen. And if you go back and look at everything I've said in the last 20 years, it's all happening. But the timing wasn't always perfect. You know, some, yeah. I, I was thinking we were going to get into a gold market, you know, four years ago. It, and, it, and it took that long for the Fed to finally blink. I kept saying they can't raise rates. It's impossible to raise rates. They can't unwind the balance sheet. It's it's mathematically impossible. I kept trying to point out to people the the arithmetic behind it, and you know, and Wall Street you know convinced everybody, the Fed convinced everybody that they would normalize rates. 
And it wasn't until they finally blinked, and it took them a lot longer than I thought, they finally blinked, they stopped raising rates, and I thought, okay, game on. And then when they started to lower rates, I knew the game was really on. So yeah. it, sometimes the timing's hard, but guys like Gartman when they, and others, when they look at the, when they talk about the macro picture and how it's playing out, yes, we're, there's a lot of truth in that. You have to be careful because we're being, I think, manipulated to believe certain things about that the, the, the economy's okay, the market's okay, you know, and it's not true. I mean, we're in a really dangerous situation and, you know, and I, I don't like what I'm, I, I really don't relish the world we're going to see here in the next few years as this thing unravels. It's not going to be good. And I think owning gold is just buy yourself some insurance. That's all. It's it like one of the things my father always said to me. He said things always take a lot longer to change than you think, but when they do, they change a lot more profoundly than you ever thought. And so I think it's, that it's, that's it's like what Mark Twain said about bank bankruptcy. He said it happens slowly and then suddenly. No, sorry, it was early family. <laughs> It happens slowly and then suddenly. <laughs> totally true. Um, just a couple more questions here. One that's just a personal question of mine, but um, look, you're, you're super successful. You've been in total, like, totally different sectors. You don't need to work. You could retire and you know sit on the beach all day kind of thing. What continues to drive you? Like, What is it about capital markets? What is it about investing? What is it that you get up every day and you're like, Frank, today you know i gonna kill it because like how would you finish that sentence because i believe and i here's what i recommend you do i have a blog called frankjuster.com and i like i write about a whole host of things not just markets but I, I write about philanthropy which is the biggest part of my what gets me up in the morning is my philanthropy it's 80 percent of my life that's really what i care about i have a lot of fun doing business and doing deals that's great but the secret is to always be curious always be learning new things live your life in a balanced way and i wrote this these uh, series of five articles called the secrets five secrets to a balanced life and just get up every morning feeling that you're going to do something and have you know whether it's work or you know philanthropy or whether you're going on an adventure or you're at home cooking be passionate about what you're doing learn something always be curious don't let your mind go stale and that's the secret to not getting old it's just always learning new things and i just get excited about doing things i, I just love learning and having fun and trying and, and, and business deals are sometimes they're they're adventures you know you, you get into something that's exciting it's new you have to learn something new uh and it keeps your mind sharp yes and it's an adventure life is an adventure um, last question which will be very revealing um to uh myself and our audience if you could have dinner and leonardo dicaprio because your involvement in, in films and content and you know his environmental activism and philanthropy or alan greenspan because of what you mentioned um his quantitative easing <laughs> beginning back in the 90s or donald trump because of today's you know tariff wars and everything he's doing who would you have dinner with and what would you talk about what would you ask them i think greenspan and I would ask him why he was such a hypocrite. He was a, a real believer in gold before he became uh, the Fed chairman. Then he became the Fed chairman and he abandoned all belief in gold and he basically created the environment that we're in today by creating easy money policy at every, at every obstacle. And now that he's, when he retired, he tried to rewrite history and now he's a gold believer again. And I just find, I would ask him, you know, you know, what inspired you to be so 
hypocritical. I mean, it's just, you know, I would really groan. I, I would enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can arrange that. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. We see if we can get him on Twitter or get his attention on Instagram yeah. or something. Um, Frank, it's been an absolute treat. Uh, so happy to be working uh, with your team and Fiore on the Sandspring file. I think that's going to be really exciting. So our audience knows we are committed to one gold company for six months. You won't hear Greg Capital talk about anything else but this one. And uh, we think it's great. One great, great partners. You've got Brand Columbia as a partner. You've got Fiore Group. Uh, you've got big insider shareholders. So again, Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, can't wait to talk to you soon. Hopefully we can make this a regular update type thing. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye.